0: back it's time for another episode of wvu today coming to you live from the campus of west virginia university and their school of online data marketing communications with the man who knows how to communicate all this somehow michael lynch hey michael Hey, how's it going today? Okay, well, we're always looking forward. I I love the rugby shirt. People can't see that you're wearing a rugby (laughs) shirt, but I I think that just fits the kind of rugged, uh, get-in-there-scrum kind of uh, talks that we have here on this show here.
1: Well, I think today is going to be especially (laughs) scrum-like. Not only is today's topic very interesting, but to my mind, it's very important. I wish we had three hours today, but we are constrained to 30 minutes, so let's just go ahead and dive right in there. Okay. Today, I'm very pleased to have Patrick Delaney. Patrick Delaney has spent over the last decade talking about one of my favorite subjects, which is food and food and agriculture. Patrick, let's just jump right in there. So what has changed in the conversation about food over the last 10 years or so?
2: Thanks for having me, Michael. I appreciate the opportunity to chat about this, as you said it is really important topic, and it is, frankly, a universal topic. Everybody kind of experiences it differently. That much hasn't changed, but essentially everything else has. Now, I think the access people have to information about food, to media takes on food and where it comes from, uh, the access that social media provides, I think that all has changed really dramatically in the last 10 years. And so the conversation about food and how people eat it, how people cook it, how people uh, get it or don't, it has really evolved similarly. And so it, it really is, is evolving, frankly, faster than I think a lot of communicators are ready for. And so it's a, it's a real challenge, but it's a, a opportunity just the same.
1: I was lucky enough to attend a very interesting seminar not long ago, which was about food. And half the people at the seminar were supporting genetically modified organisms and including vegetables and fish and different kind of livestock, etc. while the other half, of the people at the seminar were espousing biodynamic and organic and really getting away from the modifications now the gmo people were saying that if we do this right we'll be able to feed the world on the other hand the organic and biodynamic people were saying if we do this we may end up with problems we never dreamed of so from your perspective over the last let's say several years how has that discussion really evolved?
2: Well, you know, unfortunately, it has not evolved to involve less emotion. It is still one of the biggest aspects of conflict when we talk about how we talk about food, and not necessarily just GMOs, but the the processing of food and the technology that is involved with creating food products and growing food and that sort of thing, and so to your point about the two kind of uh, opposing factors in the discussion that you witnessed you know it's it's possible that both of those both of those camps are right you know the challenge that you have though is do you approach the production of food from the precautionary principle of we don't know so should, we should not advance or do you approach it from the perspective of how do we make these advancements responsibly and keeping an eye towards those those questions that do still linger and i think the challenge that a lot of farmers have and food producers have and a lot of brands have is distilling what is a very, very technical aspect of the production of food and of what is behind the label and what all of those long words mean in an ingredients list is distilling that very technical amount of knowledge down to something that the general consumer can take with him or her and understand or at least feel confident in those elements as being safe and as being something that helps helps keep food affordable that takes effort and frankly it takes a lot of courage because what you're doing is putting yourself out there and saying, hey look this is something that we use to produce our food and it's not scary and this is why you should not be scared of it there are risks that are associated with talking about it that way you put yourself out there and you run the risk that people might take what you're saying and be afraid of it that's just a an element of courage that I think more folks need to have
1: that's great Now, what I hear from time to time is expressions like, farmers feed the world. What exactly does that mean?
2: To be honest, I think it's an inkblot that means something different to everybody who says it, you know, everybody who hears it. For a lot of farmers, feeding the world looks like a growing middle class in China or burgeoning demand in India. To a lot of folks, feeding the world looks like working class and lower income folks in the city. I think to be honest it's got to mean all of those things i don't mean to shy away from taking a side here but i think you get yourself in trouble by taking a side and if you are thinking of the world in quotes as some kind of nebulous thing off you know halfway around the world you're missing a very important impact and impacted people In your own backyard and conversely if you're thinking of folks only in the suburbs or only at the front end of the food trend perhaps maybe you're missing out on a large part of the consumer base that drive what we grow and what we make and what we sell so it really is a challenge i think the concept of feeding the world is a challenge that demands folks to think about it in more than one term
1: yeah and i think it's difficult for us very often to think globally I was recently reading some information about agriculture in Australia, not necessarily involved with the fires and the temperature changes that are going on down there. But was surprised to find out actually how much rice is produced in Australia that they use in Japan and Korea. Now, no pun intended here, but people clearly do have an appetite to know where their food is coming from and what is in their food. What opportunities and challenges do you think that really presents for different brands and different organizations?
2: It's a massive opportunity for farmers, for the groups that represent them, for brands, for the people who, uh, you know, the the folks who make the food, and the folks at the food service industry that are at the front end of those trends as well. I think that, again, consumers want transparency. Now, whether or not they are fluent in the terms that farmers use in producing food or brands use in processing and producing food products, that is a different discussion. And frankly, the level to which customers really understand and consumers really understand what is grown and how it's grown and what's produced really makes this conversation harder. But the fact of the matter is that they want transparency. And brands, I think, see a lot of value in transparency as well. You have seen things like the B Corp model and 1% for the planet really take off. And they are, uh, non-GMO project is another one. Uh, They are labels that really beget more information sharing. Now there is big uh, disagreement in food circles as to whether some of those organizations are pushing information or incomplete information. I'm not here to, to weigh in on either one of those things. But at the same time, those organizations wouldn't exist if customers did not want more information on how their food is produced. And so you have really seen more brands talk more in depth about what their food is and where it comes from. And frankly, who grows it? Now I go to the, to the grocery store. I live in suburban Maryland and I go to the grocery store and there are little placards over the apples or over the cabbages or, or the potatoes and it's got a, a farmer that lives out in pennsylvania or in maryland or virginia that grows these apples or these potatoes and so i do feel like there is an effort at all points in the supply chain to talk more about the origins of these things and how it works that is discussion that, again, really presents challenges because it means being open. It means putting yourself out there if you're a farmer, or it means putting yourself out there if you're a brand and and running the risk that the customer may not like what, uh, what, what you have to say.
1: Yeah, I know locally sourced has become a really big trend recently. We'll talk about some other trends in just a little bit, but what I really want to talk about very briefly is do people really want to be told what to eat. I know during the Obama administration, there was some kind of pushback on healthier eating, the Let's Move movement, the My Plate. Do people really bristle at that message?
2: Yeah, I think in general, people don't like being told what to do. And I think that's no different in food as it is from any other walk of your daily life. But at the same time, I think what people don't realize is the dietary guidelines, for example, they're just guidelines. They are suggestions, and they are suggestions based on, on the best available science and the best available medicine you know, medical advice. And so when folks say, hey, you probably ought to eat more fruits and vegetables, you probably ought to eat more fruits and vegetables. Those things are tough. And so when you look at the initiatives that the government has undertaken under the Obama administration, be they my plate, be they let's move, I had an opportunity to work on both of those campaigns on the industry side when I was working for the fruit and vegetable growers. That's a challenge because you have to overcome the preconceived notions of government as telling folks what to do. And it is really a mistake to assume that that you're operating from a point where nobody has predetermined what they think of your message, and that is really
1: hard. Well, this is amazing, Patrick. We need to take a little bit of a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about some of the best ways to get out these messages.
0: Okay, well, this will give you long enough just to pause and digest some of the uh, mind-blowing stuff we're talking about here today, but uh, there's a place you can learn more of these kinds of cutting-edge concepts It's West Virginia University's online data marketing communications program, first graduate program of its kind in the country, focusing on strategic thinking, problem-solving, and informed decision-making. We're trying to do here today, get some informed decision-making data. The data marketing communications program prepares you for a career in all these exciting new fields by learning the innovative tactics from award-winning faculty like those presented here each and every week. You can learn more. DMC for data marketing communications. DMC.WVU for West Virginia University. EDU. DMC.WVU.EDU. All right, let's pick it back up. You are right about this one, Michael. You could talk for hours about this because you're talking about so many different layers here. The, does the public really want to know that much about their food? Do they really want to be told that much about their food? And yet minute there's a crisis in China or a fear of a of an infection from something, boy, they all want to know the story of where it came from here and, and so many times also I look at like coffee and other things there are these little coffee houses that specialize in only sustainable helping small farmers, not the big chains in Colombia somewhere, and they want to tell that story. I, it, I don't know. Where, where's, the, where's the problem in the process here? Is it in collecting the information? Is it being open and transparent? Or is it in the end consumer who may or may not really want to hear it?
1: I'm not really sure, but I'm sure Patrick is going to help us with this. (laughs) I think part of it might be um, getting out the message in a digestible, excuse the expression, (laughs) uh, sort of form. And the other way is having people be willing to hear the message and willing to understand. There is so much involved in food. It has to do with your parentage. It has to do with your culture. It has to do with society. I'll be honest with you. And we all know that there are people out there who feed their families off of the $1 menus, which is not the healthiest way to feed your tribe. But it's a reality in the 21st century. It's a reality for some of us that just to get the family fed, we have to just kind of decide on buying off the $1 menu because that's what we can afford. And unfortunately, that's a so I'd sad. be curious
0: to hear from your guest. It seems to be over the last few years, we have more information on our labels. We have more concerned about nutrition. Even McDonald's has to put calories and other things where they do. I don't know if they have to, but they do. They put calorie information up on their menus. Is this trend going to continue or have we reached the limit of how much we want to know? So, Patrick, do you really think
1: that this trend is going to continue, or where are we really going with, I know, a lot of restaurant menus I look at now. I'll see the calorie count. Some of the calorie counts scare the heck out of me. But where yeah. are we going in that area? Well, I'll tell you, from my
2: point, I don't see any signs of that trend abating. I see it certainly continuing only because brands respond to what consumers want. If we're thinking this, uh, thinking about this in, in free market Terms companies don't sell what people won't buy. They might for a while. That doesn't sustain, and so they sell things in the way people want to buy them. And I think that's why you have seen more transparent labeling, an effort to tell folks more about what the foods are and what things come with them, and the you know the effort to encourage more more responsible choices along the lines of calories and fat and things like that. And so, I, you know, I think as long as there is a consumer demand for this, there will be a brand response.
0: To so I have to interject one more thought here. I'm just thinking of Michael's comment about uh, restaurant menus. Over the last few years, suddenly I've seen not only the calorie count, but they say whether it's GMO, they say whether it's free-range chicken, they say whether it's gluten-free. I mean, is there an end to how many descriptions or how many, no MSG, you know, all these things? More and more, the menu is beginning to look like a literary novel here.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, I think I think the end is where the customer decides it is. When those things no longer move the market, move sales, then you'll see brands move away from them. But as long as the customer is out there demanding to know if there are GMOs in it, regardless of whether or not those products are even produced with GMO, there's going to be that response.
1: My first look into food and world food and world hunger and things like that was about 40 years ago, I'm dating myself, when I attended a conference with the performer Harry Chapin. He gave us Cats in the Cradle and a number of other really great songs. And he was talking about the fact that He felt that it was possible for us to feed the world with the amount of food that's already being produced. There has been talk about how much food is actually literally wasted, which is to say never even makes it to market, never even makes it to production. There are movements that I've heard about in maintaining commodity prices by not bringing certain products to market by just throwing them out or dumping them. Can we feed the world? Well, sure. Absolutely.
2: No, I I think if if i didn't believe that i wouldn't i wouldn't have have carved out a a place in this industry for a career of course we can and i think i would never put it past put anything past the ingenuity of farmers and of brands to to create new and better and bigger i think the challenge there is figuring out a way to do it in such a way that people not only feel empowered to grow and and explore new things to produce and ensure that, that folks on the consumer end feel empowered to buy those things confidently and, and in a way that helps them feed their family. Can we do it affordably? Can we do it responsibly are all questions that are linked to one another. And I, I'm afraid, as you, as you said in the open, that may be a longer podcast, but I think it is absolutely possible. Well, I mean, look, we have to. There, what's the alternative?
1: Right. There you go. I think I agree with you. Because this is a podcast about marketing communication, Let's get back to that point. What are some of the best ways to get out a message that might have a political aspect to it or maybe an interpersonal aspect to it or a change in behavior or societal norm? How do you get out that message and get it accepted by the public? You mentioned Harry Chapin just shortly after
2: Mr. Chapin was his most active. You saw the farm aid movement take off and you saw folks like Willie Nelson and John Mellencamp and, and later on Neil Young and, and Dave Matthews come together and talk about the issues that are facing small family farmers around the United States. Fast forward to current day, you see guys like Jose Andres, you a know, chef active here in D.C. and around the world, it has been doing this remarkable humanitarian work using the power of his kind of uh, celebrity voice. These are not creators of a movement. These are people that have realized that they are in a very good place to use the power of food and producing it to talk about bigger issues and to talk about things that are really important to people. And the fact that you now have all of those important messages uh, supplemented by really powerful medium like Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and other social media it is it creates this incredibly rich and fertile environment for people who want more information about their food to get it. I grew up in Kansas, and you think about somebody in western Kansas who's got a cell phone and access to Instagram, and they are following a bunch of food accounts, right? They're, they're following uh, stuff that, that is showing them the latest food trends in uh, New York and L.A. and D.C. and Paris and London and all of those things. Now, they are able to really break those down into ingredients and try a bunch of this stuff at home. Now, you start to get into the conversation of food deserts and, and where folks have access to foods. But in a lot of cases, you know, you're able to, to uh, break down really trendy food items into stuff that's available at your local grocery store. Take street tacos, for example. You know, you can, get, you can get a flank steak, you can get some tortillas, you can get some onions and some salsa, and there you are. And all of a sudden, you're thinking about being at the front end of food trend that's really taken off in places like D.C. with taco trucks and and things like that. There is access there. Now, it needs to be made better for a lot of people. But when you think about what trends are taken off and you think about the power of celebrity voices and the power of social media that really combine to advance those things, there is a huge amount of potential to shine a light on all aspects of the food and agriculture system in this country.
1: How big a problem is disinformation? You mentioned celebrities and social media and things like that. How big a problem in getting the message out is the static or the flack that one hears through social media on things that might not be 100% true, 100% real?
2: With information always comes disinformation. And uh, the the idea of having more and more public and more recognizable voices on food and farming brings with it the possibility that those voices aren't going to be saying what you may want as a food producer or you may want as a brand or you may want as a consumer. There's a possibility that that message may not fit what you want all the time. I'm struggling to think of another avenue of communication where the uh, one communicator and the recipient of that communication gets what they want out of the exchange all the time without fault. What this takes on all parties is effort. The conversation about food is a massive opportunity for farmers. It's a massive opportunity for brands. And it's a massive opportunity for consumers to all get in and talk more. We don't solve the disinformation question without engaging people respectfully and working with them to help them understand the things that they don't and increase our own understanding. You know, if I'm a farmer, I can't simply expect that everybody out there is going to understand what I do and talk about it in the terms that I want, unless I engage with them and tell them what those things are. Similarly for consumers and similarly for brands, and so I think it is, it is a wonderful opportunity But combating that disinformation and getting us to a place where we have an honest discussion about it takes a lot of work. Whether or not we're up for that work, that's another question.
1: Well, Patrick, I have got to tell you that this was one of the most fascinating and possibly one of the more important podcasts I've ever had the pleasure of doing. I really want to thank you participating with us today if we can go ahead and continue the podcast for another two and a half hours that would be really great
0: oh not today <laughs>
1: uh, but this is uh this has been a really uh really informative really wonderful conversation and i deeply appreciate you being with us today patrick thank you
2: well i appreciate the opportunity thank you you've
0: been listening to wvu marketing communications today brought to you live from west virginia university a bi-weekly program that sits at the intersection of data-driven decision-making and marketing practice, only on the Funnel Radio Network. For at-work listeners like you,